Deuteronomy 32.4 has a good definition. It says this, describing God, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Let me read that again. This is who God is. He's the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. When I cannot figure out what's going on around me with the people who have choices and are imperfect and living in a sinful world, I can focus on the one who's perfect. I can focus on the rock. I can focus on the one who is just. I can focus on God's faithfulness. I can focus on the fact that he's upright and honest and will always make decisions based on what's right. Now, I may not understand that, and I don't need to understand it, but that's always the case. Sometimes we want God to be one that performs for us, that when we pray, he does what we tell him. And if he does what we tell him, then he must be God. But that's not who God is. That's not the definition of God. God is who he said he is in the scripture. When he talked to Moses, he said, I am. That's all he said. And he was, and he is, and he continues to be. There's a time in Mark chapter 7 where people were absolutely amazed at him because he did something in his realm of capability, he healed a person who couldn't hear and couldn't speak. Mark 7:37 says, And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus was never into performing. I think today the church needs to re-examine how they do things because I think often we begin to fall into a performance idea. The people in front are taking on patterns that maybe are happening in Nashville or other places where we're performing rather than having people join us in worship. We're performing for them in worship. Or perhaps the speaker is going to be very flamboyant and, and charismatic and get everybody to feel a certain way. Well, we're not performers. Jesus wasn't a performer. God isn't a performer. I, as a speaker and a teacher, am not a performer. God loves and he tells me to love. And I do that in the context of my personality. God and I are vastly different, obviously. He can change any circumstance, any situation, so he could perform at any time. If I came to him and said, God, if you make that tree split in half, I'll believe you, God, he could do that. But I doubt he's going to. He doesn't need to perform for me in order to be God. He doesn't need to perform for you in order for him to be God. He is God. And whether he splits the tree in half or not doesn't make him God or doesn't take away from who he is. The context of verse 37 
is found in Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. So let me read that. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought him to a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he said to him, Epaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all these things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now you can imagine to the people in the area this was an amazing act. But it wasn't an amazing act to God. God can speak any time. He created the universe. He created frogs. He created fish. He created all the animals. He created all the stars. For him to heal somebody who is sick is not a big deal. To raise people from the dead isn't hard for God because he created people from dirt. God is almighty. He has the future in mind. He does not need to perform for us in order to be God or in order for us to even know that he's God. When we just open our eyes, we can do that. It's interesting. I asked myself as I looked at this passage, how did God work? Well, he sought out a problem and he fixed it. When I have a problem, the best thing I can do is go to God and realize that by the word of his mouth, he can solve that problem. But if he doesn't solve it, I'm still the one that has perspective, not God. God doesn't have perspective. He doesn't have opinion. I'm the one that has that. So if he doesn't solve the problem when I bring it to him, perhaps it's not a problem. Perhaps it's an opportunity. Sometimes we mistake opportunities for problems, and we want them taken away. Some of the greatest times in our life might be those times where we go through some very rough moments. And during those rough times, we see the very hand of God in our life. We see it as a sustaining hand, or a changing hand, or a healing hand. In all different ways, we can see it. But the bottom line really is there are often times of great difficulty that allow us to draw close to God. And anyone who has drawn close to God will tell you there is no more precious alignment in life than to be close to God. So I think that they were seeking God to fix a problem, and that's normal. I think it's normal for you or for me to go to God with our problems and realize that he can fix them right now. And if he doesn't, we praise him anyway like Job did because we understand that he is totally capable of changing the circumstance but didn't because he loves us, even though we don't understand it. Obviously, God responded quietly and individually with the person. This really wasn't about a crowd. It really wasn't about a performance. This wasn't about entertainment. 
He took this person aside, it says in verse 33, taking him aside from the crowd privately. He didn't want everyone to see what he was doing. This wasn't about following a procedure, and maybe down the road you can heal people as well. This wasn't about, like I said, a performance. It wasn't entertainment. I'm sure the man who was deaf and dumb at this point was wishing that he could be healed. Perhaps God saw his heart. Perhaps God understood what this person in the crowd needed. I'm sure that's the case. But God also knew he did not need to perform in order to be God. There were many people, while Jesus lived, that were not healed from their diseases. It isn't God's will to always heal people that are sick. One day, those who are in God's family, those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, when they leave this earth, they will be healed, and they will stay healed for the rest of their life. And that's something we can all look forward to if we're in God's family. But this life is full of tough times. And even though God could make them simple, often he wants us to go through those tough times to accomplish something greater than the suffering of that tough moment. I often look back at those days when I played football and hockey and was on a swimming team, and, and I realized that there were often very tough moments in those sports, not during the games necessarily, even though they could have been tough, but the grueling practices, the things that we had to do to be prepared for the game. I once counted up how many hours we practiced compared to how many hours we actually played. It was an astonishing difference. We practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and played very little. I think of that for Olympic athletes that might be in something like speed skating or something where they practice for years. I have a friend who is is a, a former speed skater for the United States Olympic team, and I believe she skated four times. I believe she was in training for 20 years. But as you go through that, you realize that your race is only a few minutes long. You train and train for years. You train in every possible way. You're trying to shave off just a few seconds. But the race is quickly done. And when you finish, you look back and you think about another four years that you need to put in so that you can race again in four years. See, a lot of life is really practice. You wish that you could learn what you need to learn early in life. But learning takes time. It takes time because we're not always a willing student. Not only are we not always a willing student, there are moments where we just don't know what we need to do in order to improve. That's where, in a physical sense, in a human sense, the coach comes in and watches the film and tells you that you need to do this or you need to do something else. Well, God knows what I need to do to be successful. So what I need to do is position myself to hear his voice. I need to go to his word and read it. And in that, I can be a success. But that opportunity that we share is something that each of us needs to do personally with God, just like this individual was dealt with privately 
I am dealt with privately as well. And he responded to this individual and, and wished it for that. Because our interaction with God is not a performance. It's not something we're doing so other people are awed with us. It's not something that we're trying to do to be a circus routine for people. It's a relationship. There should be, in every healthy relationship, private moments. Moments that aren't shared with anyone else but the person you're in that relationship with. Could be a touch, it could be a, a comment, it could be something else. But every healthy relationship has private moments that need to remain private. And you should have time where you talk to God privately about life. But all that's on your mind and understand that you're talking to the one who can change all things. And if he doesn't, it's because he's got a plan for your good. Well, I enjoy the fact that he responded quietly to this individual. He wasn't about the crowd. He wasn't about a performance. He wasn't about entertainment. One of the interesting words in this passage that kind of got me thinking was after he took this individual aside and healed him, or on his way to heal him, he looked up to heaven and he sighed. And I think he sighed. I wonder what that meant, the sigh. What did he do when he sighed? Well, I don't know. When I sigh, and God sighs, is it the same thing? I don't know. When I looked up the word sigh, I saw that that particular word was used six times totally in the Bible. And I went and read those passages, and it seemed to be a condition that was not overly dramatic. It's just a sigh. It was translated groan three times, and grief once, and grudge once, and sigh once. But again, the Bible isn't written in English, so the translators are doing their best to try and portray something that happened in a way that we would understand it. A little bit after this, Jesus fed 4,000 people. Now, once again, you would think that since Jesus wasn't into a performance, this is a pretty big performance he's putting on. He just healed an individual who was deaf and dumb, and the people were astonished at it. And then he goes in chapter 8 of Mark, and he feeds 4,000 people. Let me read that to you, Mark 8, 1 to 13. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in the desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. 
and immediately he got in a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delmanthia. Well, that's pretty interesting. They came to a place where they were ministering to a large crowd. And Jesus had compassion on these people in the crowd because they were hungry. They were obviously hungry to hear Jesus, which is really good. But he also was concerned about their physical well-being. The disciples actually knew what he did, but I'm not sure the whole crowd did. The disciples probably were totally astonished. Or were they getting used to the fact that God could do the impossible? I, I really don't know. But as we look and we see what happened here, we see that Jesus took care of a crowd of 4,000 people by just dividing a few loaves and some fish. The 11th verse in that chapter goes on to say this. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Can you believe it? He just healed a deaf and dumb person. He told people not to say anything, but they did anyway, so everyone knows that he healed them. He feeds 4,000 people with a few loaves and some fish. And the religious people come and say, if you're really from heaven, prove it. Remember, God doesn't need to prove that he's God in order to be God. You can look around. You can see the universe. You can see the earth. You can see, again, the way that God created things, and you can be awed by that. But he doesn't need to perform for you in order to be God. He doesn't need to perform for the Pharisees here in order to be God. He does not need to entertain anybody or do what they say in order to be who he is. If you came to me and you said, Dave, if you take this ball and throw it in the air and catch it, you're Dave. That wouldn't make any sense to me because I'm Dave whether I throw the ball in the air and catch it or not. These people can come to God all they want and say, if you do this, you're God, but if you don't do it, you're not God. And it has no bearing whatsoever on whether God is God. And the Pharisees, they thought, very much of themselves, so they thought they had the power to do that, but they didn't. They were speaking to the one who created them. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Verse 12 is what I wanted to get to because there's another sigh here. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Well, that's interesting. He got upset that they wanted a sign. Well, you know, if every time I saw you, you were trying to have me prove that I'm Dave Wager, I think I might get upset with you too. God does not need to perform or entertain in order for him to be God. He doesn't need to respond to your or my demands in order for him to be God. He is God. He will always be God. He will always do right. We align ourselves with him. We don't demand that he aligns himself with us. And that's really the way it should be. The sigh here is 
a very peculiar one because it's the only time this particular word is used. The other one had several times it was used, but this one just once. It was different than the sigh before when he was healing the deaf and dumb man. This one seems to be a sigh of frustration because these people choose to stay this way. I wonder how often God does get frustrated with me or with you because we choose to stay the way we are. We ask God to do something outside of his will in order to show us that he's God. And if he doesn't do it, we don't believe that he is God. I wonder how often he gets frustrated with us. I don't know if frustrated is the right word. I'm trying to understand how God responds to things from my own human understanding and perspective, so I'm probably flawed on that. But he did sigh here. And he sighed in a way that seemed to be a frustrating sigh. And the Pharisees probably would frustrate me as well. They just wanted him to perform. Do I ever want God to perform? Just so I can be entertained? Just so I can have things my way, maybe? Manipulate God to say, you're not really God. You don't really love me if you don't do what I tell you. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's got to get old to God. Anyone who is a parent understands that argument doesn't work. When a child says, if you love me, you let me have ice cream or whatever it might be, we we understand the um, immaturity of that comment. Perhaps I've come to God through my life and been very immature in some of the comments that I've made to him. Trying to get him to do something that I think is right. Forgetting that I have perspective and that my perspective might be skewed. But he doesn't have perspective and he's always going to do right. One of the greatest things in the world is to be able to come to God and leave it at his feet. Say, God, I'm concerned about this. I know you can take care of it. I also know that if you don't do it the way I'm thinking, that you can provide for me what I need to go through that. Either way, You love me and you have a plan. Either way, we'll get to the other side. You see, I I think it takes a lot of pressure off when we don't have to direct God and what he does because we really don't know what he needs to do. We don't know the future. We just know today. And all of us have feelings and emotions, and we want those feelings to be in line with how we think they should be. We want to be comfortable. We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. We don't realize, as God does, that he wants us to be comfortable and loved as well. But people make choices, and in the context of choice, there's real consequences. And we live in a world where every single person we will ever meet has been given that privilege of making choices. And every choice we make has a consequence attached to it. We need to understand that those choices are important. I can choose to know God and spend time in his word and enjoy who he is. Or I can choose to try and manipulate God all my life. One way is rather frustrating and the other way gives us a faith rest life. 
the ability to rest in the fact that God knows what he's doing and loves us, no matter what the situation is. Those who are believers need to demonstrate the fact that they know who God is, not that they have somebody that they can manipulate so that their life is better than somebody else's. The problems around the world are all the same. Every single human being is sinful. Every single person who doesn't seek God will be miserable because they're seeking something else. Everyone that's not in a relationship with God is going to be miserable because they're not living according to the way that they were created to live. Ecclesiastes 3, 11 to 15 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which has already been, that which is to be, already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. That's an interesting passage. Right at the beginning, I think, yes, God made everything beautiful in its time. God is working in my life to refine me and to bring me to the point where I'm ready for eternity. I'm not 100% sure what he's doing all the time, but I know that he's doing something in my life to create an atmosphere so that I can grow and develop into the person I'm supposed to be. It's like a coach. Sometimes I may not get it, and I may not even like it. It says here, though, that he's put eternity into man's heart. So in my heart, I know that this earthly life is not the last stop, that I'm going to go on forever. But there's a comma after it says he also put eternity into man's heart. And after the comma, it says, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's this mystery still about God. I I would love to fill in all the blanks, but I can't. I cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end because my mind cannot wrap around that. One of the wonderful things about life is being a child of God's and knowing that our Heavenly Father has it under control and that he loves us so I can relax and let him love me. I do not need to figure it all out. I do not need to understand it all. Let me say that again. I don't need to figure it all out, and I don't need to understand it all. I need to relax and let God take care of it all. It's the only way to go through this life. There is no possible way for me to go through life trying to understand everything about God, everything that he has done. Think about those who have tried to figure out how the world came into existence without God. Just read another article today that contradicts what they've learned up till now, and that'll keep happening. One of the best things I can do is just thank my Heavenly Father for the frog I see or the 
the fish that I see or the sunset or the sunrise or the stars or the aurora borealis or whatever I see. Because he made it. And he wants me to enjoy it. It's his gift to me. So many times when I see a sunrise, I, I just pause and thank Heavenly Father for it. It's his gift to me that day. He painted the sky a beautiful color. And the sun is coming up again. The sun that will give us light. That will allow life to grow and develop on this earth. God's given that to us. I don't have to understand everything about it. I just need to love God and allow him to be my Heavenly Father. And likewise, you as well. God loves you. He loves me. He is beyond our understanding. He's beyond all comprehension. But he'll never do anything wrong. We need to relax and enjoy who he is. And in that process, we can be at peace in this life. Not anxious, but at peace. Once again, I thank you for spending time with me tonight. I'm Dave Wager here in the studios at Silver Birch Ranch on the campus of the Nicolay Bible Institute. We're always looking for young students that can come and join us at the Nicolay Bible Institute. If you know any, send them our way. Good night for now.